discuss. This is the sixth teaching in this series. It will suffice for the remainder of the summer, even after my vacation. We'll, uh, we'll basically split this into two parts. And we've talked about a great many things since we began this series. And I want to recap just a few before we get into what we're going to talk about today. So we talked about the significance of Paul using this, this large me- military metaphor that describes how God gives us certain pieces of armor, spiritual armor, and how each piece of armor provides us a very specific tool. It gives us an asset, if you will, in life that helps us to really do two things according to this text. The first is to stand against the schemes of the enemy, and we spent a couple of weeks really trying to debunk some of the craziness about spirituality that we might see in the world today, but also trying to understand in an intelligent and thoughtful way what Paul means when he says the schemes of the enemy. And the overarching idea that we presented there was that we are to be a people who can understand God's truth and can recognize when there are distortions of truth around us. And that is the number one scheme of the enemy, is to take the, the beautiful things that God has given us, to take the great truths that he's given us, and to distort them in ways that disadvantage us in life and cause us to see God in ways that are different than the way that he wants us to see him. Basically, it causes us to see God in ways that are not great, and at times even ourselves in ways that are not great. And I gave a great example of this, a very clear one. For example, there are a lot of people who walk around our world today wondering if they have any worth or value in life. And that's a great example of a distortion of God's truth. No matter where you are or where you're coming from, God loves, deeply values life, all people, because we're made in his image. And so that's a great example where a a great majority of people today, it's a growing epidemic where folks are struggling with these serious emotional, spiritual, and physical darknesses, this sort of blue the blueness, if you will, of life that they have. And a lot of times that stems from the fact that they wonder whether or not they matter, and they do. So perfect example of a scheme of the enemy. It also talked about us being able to stand against the difficulties of life in general, and that's what we're going to focus on here today. So we're given this armor, handful of them, the belt buckle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, which we've already talked about, Truth simply meaning that there is an objective reality God would like us to know in this world. He has, he has said things for a reason. And the more we know and grow in his truth, the more likely we are to flourish on this earth as God's people and just as people. That's the importance of truth in the Christian faith. And then two weeks ago, we spent two weeks talking about the breastplate of righteousness, which simply means we have to know that there is nothing we can do to earn the favor of God, that he equips us to not be too hard on ourselves, but to also know that Jesus did pay it all for us. That does not mean we don't have a responsibility in our faith, significant ones. We talked about those two. But understanding what Jesus' righteousness does for our lives actually helps us to be the people who, who don't function in the pressure cooker of religion. And there's a lot of that in our world today where we, we on one day proclaim that Jesus is God of goodness and grace and we believe that he has redeemed us because of what he's done on the cross. And then we live in these environments where we, we feel like we have to re-earn his love every single day. All of these things, whether we believe we are unrighteous to the point where God cannot love us, this is what Jesus deals with, or we are sort of self-righteous, which has been the problem we've experienced in the church in America for the past 30 years or so. Self-righteousness has been the bigger of the two issues. Uh, we, we wind up having this reality where we look at Jesus and think, well, you should love me because I'm just a great person, right? That's not the reality here. All of these things help us to understand who we truly are in Jesus. And that brings us to where we've been. We've been talking about the significance of the gospel shoes of peace. And last week, we talked about the importance of recognizing why Paul takes one of the most significant aspects of the Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus. And he likens them to this reality of putting on shoes. And we spent a 
decent amount of time talking about the importance of the shoe on a Roman soldier and in any modern military since then. A shoe prepared a person to be nimble, it provided them traction on a battleground, it gave them the ability to move very quickly and advance on enemies in the field. And so the shoe might seem insignificant, but we in a sort of jesting way pointed out how life would be much more difficult without them. Our shoes are designed to keep us firmly planted on this earth. And that is the analogy that Paul uses here when he talks about God's gospel of peace. And so with that in mind, I want to sort of shift into what we're talking about today. And I want to give you an analogy as we move forward, an important one, since we're almost at the midway point here. It's very common if you have children or if you remember your childhood, a lot of folks tell stories, and our kids often remember these stories, about birthdays or Christmases when they received a gift that was pretty powerful for them, something amazing. Maybe it's something they wanted for a long time, or the gift itself had deep impact and meaning, and it was such a profound gift that they actually never forgot it. I can actually remember... I actually remember one childhood gift. It was when I was 10 years old. My dad got me a fish tank, and I loved that thing. And I still have an obsession, not only with fish as far as fishing goes, but fish just like in an aquarium. They're a beautiful thing to look at. It's a gift that sort of changed me a little bit. And something awesome, maybe for you it was a first bike, or I can remember when my girls were little, there was this one time where they were, they were begging for this like massive uh, kitchen set. It was literally like a kitchen that was half as big as our real kitchen. And I wound up, we wound up getting it for them and we put it together and they, they loved it. It was the highlight of their toy collection for years. You know, they've since moved beyond that. And so if you have kids or you just remember being a kid, you, you know that things have changed a lot when it comes to big gift items like that. There actually was a time in America where you could go into a store and buy assembled gifts. However, in today's world, the phrases sum or complete assembly required is the new norm. And that's why before birthdays, and especially Christmas morning, this is probably the time that is most reflective of what I'm talking about here, a lot of parents find themselves in this secret place in their house, you know, putting all of this stuff together. I mean, can you imagine? It actually took me about six hours to assemble that kitchen set. I remember that very clearly. My hands were like all kinked up afterwards. And could you imagine how, how disappointing it would be if on Christmas morning you, you, or you received this, you gave your kids an amazing gift, unassembled in a big cardboard box with a picture of it on the front. Like it would be awesome and then they would want to open it up and there would be 6,000 screws and a bunches, a bunches of pieces of wood, right? It's, it's a bit of a disappointing way to give a, a child a gift and even to receive it because the truth here is that they would look at that and know that there was something much greater than the, un, the disassembled pieces in a box. The gift itself has the potential to do something much more amazing than it's doing in the cardboard box. Yet left in the box, it's literally useless. There's nothing you can do with it until you put it together. And that's the analogy I want to connect at this sort of halfway point in our series. In many ways, the armor of God is sort of like that gift analogy. Because when we profess faith in Christ, we actually get the, we get the armor in its entirety. We're looking at it piece by piece. But the full package of God and Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit is handed to us. It's a pretty amazing gift, this gift of armor. And it's like we get the whole suit handed to us in a spiritual box. And because we are really at a point where application matters, I want us to ask ourselves, what is it that we have been or will be doing with the gifts that we receive in this package of the armor of God? And the reason I say this is because it's very easy for us at times especially in an environment like what the American church has built like. A lot of times, we understand faith and Christianity in the church as very passive. 
we show up and you hear truths from the Bible, you are sort of worshiping by what you're hearing here, our children are being discipled in other rooms, all of this is great. Don't hear me saying a negative thing at all about some of the ways that we disciple in the American church. But I think at times what can happen is we, we can almost get to the place with our faith where we feel like it's a faith where we just receive and then, and then move on. As you know, at 12 o'clock today or so, your life will be back to normal. You'll be, maybe some of you are working for the rest of the day or tomorrow. Life can get very hectic and crazy. And so with, with a lofty and powerful teaching like this, week after week, I think it can become very easy for us to marvel at these great gifts that God has given us and then walk out of here leaving them in the box. And the real danger in a series like this is that we will just keep hearing about these truths, these things that God gives us to live in every moment of life, things that help us to, tools that help us to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy or the life trials that we deal with uh, so often. If we walk out of here not assembling these things, not wrestling mentally and spiritually with what it means to put these things on, we will live lives that are less powerful and important than God desires for us. And so today we're continuing to look at this third piece of armor God tells us to put on, which are the shoes of his gospel of peace. There's a whole teaching on this from last week, so I will not revisit the history of this. I tried my best to do that in a couple of minutes on the front end of this. I actually want to talk about the implication of the gospel shoes of peace today. Because the very nature of this piece of armor will give us all a great opportunity to self-assess whether or not we've left God's armor sitting in a spiritual box, or if we're trying to figure out how to fit it into our lives. And both of those, I, I, I'm, I, the first one especially is not a great place to be if we sort of volitionally decide that these are great things to hear about but not to apply. That's a problem, obviously. But for some of us, fitting these tools to our lives that's really where the rubber meets the road for us. So we've heard about the breastplate of righteousness, and then we're trying to determine how that actually matters in my life. And we spent some time talking about that. Today, we're going to talk about how these shoes matter in our life. Last week, we spent our, our time defining what the gospel of peace actually is and how we're supposed to fit our feet with it. It causes us to stand firm and to be ready for anything that life handles us, hands us. Excuse me. Today, as I promised, I want to talk about what one of the greatest evidence is that you have believed the gospel of peace is. It's certainly not the only evidence, but it is a primary one. There is a direct cause and effect. When we are fitted with the shoes of the gospel of peace, it should start shaping and reshaping our lives. And what I want to talk about today is when your life takes on the Christ-like characteristics of peace and joy. We literally read here that the gospel is a gospel of peace. Many applications to that, only one that I want to talk about today. And so let's jump right in and look at the only truth we're going to examine this morning. The evidence that you're wearing God's gospel shoes of peace is when you have joy in your heart. One of the great marks of the gospel in our lives is that we become a people who experience peace. Not perfectly. That doesn't mean that we never have seasons of life where we are without joy or peaceless. But it does mean that these characteristics, these traits of joy and especially peace, begin to grow in our lives. And this is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.15. I'll just reread the one sentence we are examining today. Stand firm, then, he says, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. When the gospel is fitted to our feet, we are ready to address anything that comes our way. Now, joy is a common word we use in our culture. It's also a deeply biblical attitude of the heart that has at times been misunderstood amongst God's people. Some of these words, they're very simple words in the Bible. Peace, for example. Sin, we talked about that four weeks ago. Grace, they're very short words. But the implication of them in the truth structure of Christianity is mammoth. And so if we misunderstand them, misapply them, or maybe even misdefine them, 
what happens is we can actually get to a place where we might have expectations of God that he's not promised us, or we might actually be missing out on the way God desires us to be and to live, our identity and our actions, because we don't know the root of these words. And joy is one of those words. A lot of the reasons behind this is because when it comes to joy especially, it's a very biblical word. But today the word joy is misunderstood at times. It's typically seen as a feeling of happiness. It's almost synonymous with that in the common vocabulary of people today. It's a synonym, we might say, for an external happiness. It's seen as more of an emotional posture than it is a deep-seated attitude of the heart. And so when we tend to think about the word joy or marks of it, the majority of people will say something like, well, joy means you're having fun, or it means you're laughing, there's laughter, and there's great enthusiasm in what you do. And while all of those things can certainly be uh, an evidence of joy, They are not the foundation of what joy is. Joy can express itself that way at times. But if we simply think that joy means we're happy in all areas of life, well, then it physically becomes impossible for us to have joy like the Bible talks about. Because if we're going to be honest, there isn't a single one of us in this room, myself included, that has had a moment in their life where they've not been unhappy. Every one of us has had moments of trial, of doubt, of fear, of anxiety, to differing degrees. So joy can't simply mean that we're happy all the time. Some time ago... I read a somewhat poetic description of how joy functions in our life. And it said that in the Bible, joy is defined as as sort of a buoyancy in the spirit. So we live by the water, and many of us swim in it. And you understand that in salt water, you're pretty buoyant. You can, you know, bounce down. And because of the way the water works, you can pretty much bounce right back up. Buoyancy. In the Bible, joy is defined as a sort of buoyancy in the spirit. It's the God-given ability to be able to float back to the surface of a deep and dark ocean, what we call life, to breathe when things get difficult. It's the ability when your life is being weighed down by difficult circumstances, whatever they are, it's the ability to actually endure, to catch your breath, to persevere, and to get back to the shore. Joy is what keeps us from being spiritually drowned by the everyday circumstances of life. It is an inner gladness that we can have that is independent from our circumstances, an internal happiness of heart, we might even say. And that's very important to know because oftentimes our circumstances, which we talked about at great length last week, our circumstances, whether we know it or not, we cede authority to them. We let them dictate whether or not we are happy or joyful or sad or sorrowful. And I'm not saying that circumstances cannot have that effect in our life. I'm just saying it is crazy and unwise to give circumstances that level of authority and control in your life. And so to be joyful, it really has nothing to do with us being externally happy due to life circumstances. Because to understand joy like that means we are unwisely giving the shifting sands of our circumstances an ultimate control over hope and peace in our lives. That's dangerous because it's a shifty circumstance. Our circumstances change regularly. So what you might hope in today could be gone tomorrow. And what you long for today might actually be in your life tomorrow. We just don't know. We don't have, none of us that I know of, have our lives fully mapped out to the place where we can predict every day of our future. And so circumstances, while we want to be mindful of them, we want to pray about them and plan well for them, to make them a God in life, lowercase g, is a problem. They will betray us at some point. And even worse... It implies that we've stopped looking to Jesus for our peace. That's the great problem with circumstances. The end result of looking to a circumstance to satisfy you like Jesus can is that you will eventually claim to have hope in Christ in your heart. That's what we say as Christians, at least those of us that are following Jesus, we declare that. We have hope and peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He gives us these things. We, we claim to have these things in our hearts, but we are often ruled by the weight of our circumstances. And there is a contradiction there. 
So real joy, on the contrary, real joy, Jesus-centered joy says that even when the schemes and trials come, even though life gets very difficult and hard at times, those circumstances don't have the same authority over you anymore. I'm not arguing in any naive way that they don't have an effect of us, on us, but to have an effect and to be in control of your life are two totally different things. It also means, and please hear me when I say this, that although there are many things in life we don't necessarily want to deal with, this is why we call them trials, right? We don't ask for them, they just show up on our doorstep. Physical issues, health issues, we're having problems with our children, difficulties with our parents, whatever it is, trouble in the workplace. None of us get up in the morning asking for those things, but sometimes they come to us. When that day, Paul says, when the day of evil comes, when the day of trial comes, the, the inference there is that these things will come. There will be challenges and difficulty in life. And so it means, although there are many things in life we don't necessarily want to deal with, right? Nobody longs for hardship and trial. Nobody longs for pain and suffering in their lives. No one wants to think, I'm going to be more direct here, that there will be times when God, our Father in heaven, asks us to do things that are very costly to us. Oftentimes he asks us to do things that are very costly for us, for the benefit of him and his kingdom and other people. But these things that can cost us great things in life at times are absolutely necessary for our spiritual growth in him and also to see the causes of his kingdom go forward. If we simply see joy as a synonym for happiness, then we won't even have a metric for difficulty. Whether it's persevering through something we know we have to get through, there's a greater mission in front of us that requires us to adapt and to overcome, or there's a sort of in a passive sense where we're handed a circumstance in life that we just don't know what to do with. Those things, without, without understanding of joy, they actually are instantly going to be things that defeat us. And it is unfortunate that in today's culture, some people, not all people, but some people have a hard time believing in the Christian faith anyways, that a God of love and grace would call us to do anything outside of what we want to do. But he regularly does. And this makes a lot of sense because as we continue to live in this era where there's no doubt um, kind of a growing sense of narcissism, a growing sense of self being the most important thing in life, as that continues to grow, it makes perfect sense that maybe even those who are following Jesus will be at odds with God at times when he does call us to make great sacrifices for him in ways that actually benefit the people that are around us. The way I like to say this, and this is not my terminology, there's an Old Testament scholar named Bruce Walke. He, he says the story of the gospel, at least one of them, is that it, it shows us that God disadvantages himself for the benefit of others. In other words, Jesus gets nothing out of the cross, but we get an awful lot out of it. And sometimes that is what the Christian life ex expects of us. So much so that Jesus himself, God subjects himself to the same theology of joy when he sends his son to the cross for us. And here's how I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. This isn't just an attitude Paul is writing about. This is an attitude of the heart that is being written about because God has continually, since the beginnings of people as we know it, he has lived in ways that show he is willing to put himself in a secondary position for the benefit of us. And that is crazy. If you really think about all the things the Bible says about God, this is one of the great distinctions of the Christian faith. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. We believe he is a God of truth and a God of grace. He's all of these great things. And typically in our world, when we see absolute power in things or people, it tends to corrupt absolutely. But in, in the nature of God, what we see is a God with an immeasurable amount of power who uses his power not to benefit himself, but to benefit us. And there is the story of the gospel. And understanding that is why we have to have a deep and profound understanding of what joy means. Because if we miss that, we will not know what joy is. And we might even develop crises of faith.
because of our lack of understanding of this. So listen to how Hebrews describes how Jesus himself understood joy in his own life. We'll go right to him. We're going to look at two translations of Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3, and they'll be behind me. You can read along with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Here is what I want you to hear. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, meaning consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of the things the cross teaches us, one of the examples it sets for us, is that Jesus endured incredible scorn, shame, pain, trial, and suffering, so that when we are in the places of life where we feel broken beyond repair, or we feel like what is in front of us cannot be overcome, we can look to the cross, we can look to him who has endured that, and not just look at him as an example, but we can rest in the fact that the same power that Jesus was able to deal with the cross with rests in us. That's a pretty powerful truth when you think about fitting our feet with the gospel and being prepared to deal with anything that comes our way. Hebrews, in a very technical way, explains the significance of understanding the joy of the cross. Talk about a contradiction, the joy of the cross. None of us would would view the cross, the joy set before Jesus, essentially an instrument of ancient torture as something that is joyful. So therefore, we've got to be careful. I don't think Jesus is saying he was happy about it, but there was something about what he was going to go through that really drove him to persevere and get through it. And I want to read this to you in another way from the message. I don't quote the message a lot in here. It's actually a, it's a, it's a good uh, supplement, I might say, to the historical translations that we read here. It isn't a, a technical translation itself, but oftentimes it can bring a poetic clarity to verses like this. And I want to read this in tandem with what we just read in Hebrews 12. It's the same verses in the message. Here's what they say here. Do you see what this means? Speaking about what Jesus has done. All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, the faithful, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running and never quit. No spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. The cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Both of these translations, one in a very poetic way, the other in a very technical way, Both of these translations teach us something very important about how we understand joy in our lives. And how we understand joy in our lives comes directly from how Jesus saw joy in his life. So I want you to think about this. Hebrews doesn't say that Jesus happily chose the cross. The Last Supper was not a dinner party celebrating the cross in in the way that we would have a dinner party, right? It doesn't say he was looking forward to it. In fact, we know in the garden he prayed three times that God would let that cup pass for him, but it couldn't, so he got up and went to it. It doesn't say that the joy of the cross was marked by fun and laughter. The disciples were not partying before it happened. Rather, it teaches us that Jesus not only would have, but did make any sacrifice and endured any trial, including the cross, for a handful of very important reasons. 
The first and foremost is that he deeply loved God. He loved his father, and he knew that the trials that were set before him in that day were going to bring about a greater good tomorrow. There was something beyond the cross Jesus saw that allowed him to drive through the the terrible persecution of it. And that example of joy is what the author of Hebrews offers you and I whenever we begin to grow weary in our life and faith. It doesn't mean that joy can't be marked by fun and laughter. It just means we are going to be in a world of spiritual hurt if we think that the only evidence of joy is fun and laughter. The foundational examples we get of joy in the Bible are almost antithetical to that. And fun and laughter is not enough oftentimes to get us through the most difficult realities in life. And so you see one of the great evidences that you have joy in your heart is that when the trials come, you can handle them. That does not mean you will not be beaten down by them, that you will not be bruised by them. It does not mean that they will not have long, significant, and lasting effects on your life. Sort of think of it like a boat in the waves. The boat might get tossed and rocked. It might be a very rough ride, but the boat will continue to persevere through the ocean. That's a great way to understand a teaching like this. Okay? One of the great evidences that you have joy in your heart is when the trials come, you can handle them. Now, on the contrary, and in large part to, to the growing problem of biblical illiteracy in the modern church, and by biblical illiteracy, the technical definition of this is simply that we all know how to read, most Americans do, most Christians do, but when we come to the Bible, we just don't read it. So it doesn't mean that we don't have the aptitude to read the Bible, it just means that it's a low priority on our, on our priority list in life. And so it makes sense why a lot of people can develop complete beliefs about God that are absolutely disconnected from the beliefs we read about in the, in the Bible. It's important that the word joy, no matter how we understand it in the world today, finds its root in the actual teachings of joy in the Bible. And that's what I mean by biblical illiteracy. At times, because of this, it seems like there's a, there's a growing Christian population that frequently throws around the statement, I have no joy. It's a common statement today, but it doesn't fully recognize the dire spiritual reality of what it means to say, I, I don't have any joy. That doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means if, if we are living in a world where our joy is kind of coming and going day to day, it can really significa, uh, excuse me, signify something deep and problematic about how, how the gospel of peace is tied to our feet. It might even signify that it's not. Oftentimes this statement, I have no joy, is confused. This is what we've talked about to this point. It's confused with some, some form of circumstantial unhappiness or boredom. That can come up. In other words, you know, it's kind of hard to do what I'm doing or I'm just bored in what's happening. Like, you know, I thought when I came to Jesus, I actually believed this when I first became a Christian. I've always been a pretty motivated, goal-oriented person. And I just thought like billions of people were going to follow me all around the world when I came to Christ. And I was going to be baptizing people in fountains in the pavilion. I thought that's what life would look like, right? I would, I would wave my hand at people and they would just profess faith in Christ. Don't get me wrong. I have a, a God's blessed me with a wonderful story of ministry, but but at some point what happens is, is you realize that that's not exactly the way that, that things work. And it can be very easy to get disappointed or discouraged because we have these expectations of God that he's never even promised us. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you think about the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Timothy, that's sort of like his last will and testament, he ends his ministry almost with nobody around him. The majority of people in his life have betrayed him or walked away. This is like, next to Jesus, he's the most influential man on Christianity in the Western world. Yet the the hardship and suffering he endured was mammoth, right? Unhappiness or boredom, we don't want to confuse these things. We We don't want to say we don't have any joy because of external reasons. In extreme circumstances, it can be a convenient excuse for us to just eject from our Christian responsibilities altogether. 
And that is usually most pointed when it comes to how we serve God and other people. Sometimes it is even uttered to circumvent the clear commands that God gives us in life that people just don't care for, the things that don't make them feel happy. And a lot of, a lot of the cost of the gospel at times in our lives might not necessarily make us externally happy, but it can make us internally happy. This is sort of where we're going with this. Sometimes there is a great joy in sacrificially living for other people or for our God. And that might not make sense in the equation of life. The math might seem wrong. Like, for example, in the Christian faith, to be generous with what you have, there's a really beautiful truth behind that. Sometimes sacrificially, to give away what we have to people who have need, sometimes disadvantaging self is the road to joy. And this is perhaps most true when it comes to the difficulty we face when serving other, other people that are very different from us. This is the place where I find the, the circumstances get very difficult. In particular, when we think about the marginalized in our world, the poor, those who have deep and significant physical and spiritual needs, people who are difficult, those who are very far from God. As believers, it's important that we personally answer two, two questions before we declare we have no joy in our life. And it's important to do so so that we actually don't get to a place where we're uttering that statement in a way that is untrue. It's extremely important when we think about the things that might rob us of our joy to ask ourselves two questions. The first is if you're properly defining joy according to what we've discussed in Hebrews, and although I didn't share it today for time's sake, the book of James echoes an identical statement. We're told to count it joy when trials and suffering come to us. That's what James says. It's one of the things we should look at and say, this is an opportunity for God to do powerful things in my life. This is an opportunity for God to be with me and for me to know the presence of God in ways that I might not know, disconnected from, from the troubled seas of life. We want to make sure that we have a healthy understanding of what the Bible says joy is. We want to make sure we're avoiding a surface-level feeling of happiness because if we think that's only what joy is, we're going to miss the mark. And if left unchecked, this is the point I just tried to make, if left unchecked, that can turn into a misleading and maybe even selfish emotion of the heart. So question one is, is do we really know what joy is according to the truth, that belt buckle of truth we talked about three weeks ago? Secondly, and as importantly, do you understand how dangerous it is to grow comfortable in stating that you've lost your joy? And that's, that's an equally telling statement. I'm not saying we don't have seasons where we are without joy. I'm just saying if we get to the place where we are saying regularly, I have no joy, that is a serious place. In the spiritual wor world, it's sort of the, the equivalent in the physical world of holding your chest and saying, I think I'm having a stroke. Something essential for your health is no longer in you. And so if you ever find yourself in this place, Consider this verse in light of what we spoke about, especially over these past weeks, when it comes to the schemes of the enemy and the subtle ways he often distorts the truth of Jesus. The fact that people can get to a joyless place in life likely means they are slowly taking off the armor of God. You're removing the belt of truth when you begin to think like, well, maybe I don't need to fill in the blank or I don't need to pray today or I don't need to be patient with people or I don't fill in the blank. We can fill in the blank probably in infinite ways depending on who we are and the way we are, we are wired. Very important that we recognize this. The fact that we're in this joyless place means we're removing things like the breastplate of righteousness. Maybe we've started thinking like, 
You know what? I'm just a mess in life, and there's no way Jesus can love me, even though he was nailed to a cross to prove that to us. Or maybe we're thinking, like, I'm killing it in every arena of life. And Jesus, I know you're looking at the earth, but I'm your favorite right now. Maybe it's righteousness or self-righteousness that we begin to own in ourselves, and we remove the breastplate of righteousness from our lives. Or maybe we are actually in the process of untying the shoes of the gospel of peace in its entirety. If this is you or somebody you know, I want to gently remind you of one of the great promises of the gospel of peace. Jesus tells us that no one and no thing can take your joy away. That's actually, it's impossible for something to rob you of your joy today. And this is because the joy we're speaking about isn't our joy. It is Jesus's joy. It is one of the great blessings, one of the great gifts we get when we follow him. And Jesus will not permit his joy to be stolen from any of us because he's a God of power and authority. It's one of the, one of the promises he makes us. So when you say you've lost your joy, What's happened is you've actually convinced yourself that something has taken it from you. That's the, that's the distortion. That's where the lie is. But the Bible is clear that we don't lose our joy. We just forfeit it. That's the reality of it. Is It's sort of like you have to let something take it from you. And when we do that, it will inevitably lead to a faith crisis. We don't get our joy robbed from us. We forfeit it to the things that we thought would provide joy in our life when they don't. And unless we course correct and submit ourselves, even our joyless circumstances, to the gospel of peace in Jesus, if, if we don't do that, then we are likely to go down the road we just discussed. We might get hard or bitter or angry. We might lament in unhealthy ways. We might look at God and, and disdain him or the people around us. It, it's an incubator for unhealthy relationships on every level. Understanding joy the way we've talked about, though, it actually allows us to see through the distortion that sin often creates in our lives because we're now seeing things clearly, or at least we're letting the grace of Jesus work in our lives to understand things in more meaningful and accurate ways. Because what it means is when, when you are wearing the truth, uh, the buckle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, when your feet are fitted, when you're reacting to the situations in your life through the gospel of peace, what it means is you're, you're equipped with the tools. You're putting on the things in the box. You're taking them out of the box and putting them on in your life. And so when you have questions about what it means to be valued in this world, you can answer them with the truth of God, not necessarily the, the shifting perspectives of world or the people in, your, people in your life. You're beginning to once again weigh your life on the scale of Christ's love and eternity. You're rooting yourself in the hope and the power of his life, his death, and his resurrection. You are wearing the shoes of the gospel of peace. That is the way we have joy. True joy, lasting joy, unassailable joy, a joy that gives us the ability to overcome trial and circumstance and to truly celebrate the things that are in our lives when they happen. Joy helps us to both know when victory is real and to understand when, when we think defeat, defeat is going to crush us. It gives us the ability to persevere in both areas. And so I leave you with this. It's the same thing I said last week in my conclusion because I think it's important that we have both of these polls together. When it comes to finding peace and joy in the Christian life today, there are two prevailing philosophies that have long influenced the hearts and the minds of Christians. The first is a bit naive. Each one of these things that I'm going to mention, there is a partial truth in them. And if we just apply the partial truth to our life, it's a train wreck. But if we take these truths and understand that there is, there's a little bit of truth in each one and we combine them, something very powerful happens. The first is a bit naive. It declares that if we want peace in life, then we've got to let go of everything and trust God. And I know this is a common statement at times in Christianity, and I'm not even saying I'm entirely against it. I'm just saying sometimes the triteness of this can really offend a, a, a hurting heart. We tell people when they're going through great difficulties, we'll say, you know, just let, let go and let God. And the problem with that is, is 
man, if we could just do that, we would never actually have anxiety again, right? Imagine some of the most difficult circumstances in your life, and somebody walked up to you and said, have you thought about this little thing I read in a fortune cookie? Let go and let God. And you were like, cool, I, I just let go and I'm good to go. It doesn't work that way. If life was like that, we, we would do that. But oftentimes what happens is we can't let go. We're, we're, we're troubled to the place where we can't see the forest from the trees. And so what happens there is there is a partial truth in this. The partial truth in this is that we should learn to trust God and ask him for the strength to do so when we cannot. So this, the partial truth is we should learn to trust God, but it can be very difficult at times to do that. On the other side of the fence, and equally as abusive, is the unbearable and unrealistic command to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, to fix your situation in the name of God. And the cliche associated with this is usually something like, you know, God is only going to help those people who help themselves. I had a guy in a seminary class mention that Bible verse, which actually isn't in the Bible. It's kind of funny. Uh, it makes sense. That's probably more Benjamin Franklin than it actually is Old Testament or New Testament writings, and there's some validity to that. We shouldn't check out of life or our faith, but if you want the onus of your faith on yourself, if you want to do everything in your own strength, then you have a cardinal problem with Christianity, which says you can't do anything in your own strength. I'm going to give you my strength. My name is Jesus, and then you're going to be able to do amazing things in your own strength with my strength. And so if you get these two things right, if you, if you, if you want to get this correct, you have to start getting each one of these things sort of in order. They both carry partial truths. Each of these peace philosophies alone will not restore joy to our heart. But there can be a third way here. And it is knowing that in ways we can both explain in the scripture and in ways that are also somewhat paradoxical. Our, our trials cannot be overcome in our strength alone, nor can they be overcome without our efforts. For example, if you want to know how to deal with dire circumstances in your life or wisdom in life, there is something you must do. You must read the truths of the Bible, where we read things like, if you want wisdom in life, God promises to give it to you in abundance. The action required on our part is to seek what wisdom is and to ask God how to apply it. Both of these sort of situations or these poles show us that there is a need to rest in the grace of God, but also to do that in a way where we don't buck our own responsibilities. And that's the main idea that the shoes of the gospel of peace are trying to show us. It says to us, when we're promised peace, the implication of that is that there are going to be times when we struggle. And this means that when Jesus says we can have his joy, that doesn't mean that it's going to magically make us feel better the instant we ask for it. Maybe it happens that way sometimes, but oftentimes it does not. It also means that we should not think that in order to overcome whatever we're dealing with, that we have to pull ourselves up by our own strength, our own bootstraps. God really does expect that in his grace... We, we use the tools he's given to us and trust in him to bring about a good result in our life, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he gives us the armor of God to do just that. But I end today where I began. This only matters if we, if we actually pursue the ability to take it out of the box and put it on. It's a shame if we want truth in the world, but we don't read it. It's a shame if we want wisdom, but we don't ask God for it. It's a shame if we want peace or we want to be a peacemaker in our circumstances without asking God to give us the strength and the confidence and the wisdom to do so. And so this morning, I ask you to ask yourself, if you're without joy, which is a very common thing, is it really because of circumstances? If you know somebody without joy, is it because of their circumstances? Or is it because your feet are slipping on the battlefield of life because they are no longer firmly planted in the peace and the hope of the gospel. Make sure your laces are tied here before we defer the loss, the, the loss to, to, the, to the robbery of our joy. If so, if you are struggling with the, the absence of joy today, I want to leave you with a truth to meditate on during our response time. It's not my truth. It's the author of Hebrews' truth. 
And there we read this. It'll be behind us for our response this morning. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If you are without faith, without hope, without joy, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.